Hello, friends. It's Kara. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I am back from almost three months of having my head filled in the city with all sorts of knowledge about design thinking and user experience design and the super intense immersive class that I was a part of. And I'm back up here at home in the Catskills and back in nature. And apparently that's triggering some seasonal allergies, which always hits me at the end of September into the front half of October. So I apologize for the super extra nasally Kara that you're experiencing today. But I am super excited to introduce you to today's guest, Melanie Dobson. Inspired by a childhood spent on organic farms, Melanie's been motivated by the potential of cannabis as the future of food, fuel, fiber, and of course, medicine. And informed by her experience working with a major cannabis brand, a network of medical marijuana production firms in Northern California, and as Chief Operating Officer of People Need People, a temporary cannabis labor firm, She brings a savvy and focus to her role as VP of Brand Development at Hudson Hemp and now Treaty. And before she came to Hudson Hemp, she also worked at Hudson Carbon, where she got to unite her commitment to climate change and also regenerative land management. So as you can tell from that bio... There are so many things that we can talk about with Melanie, and we're going to talk about a whole lot. Her past, the plant. So come with your curiosity all and be prepared to meet a really cool woman who is out there not letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. So voila, meet Melanie. Melanie, I am so glad you're here in the Vital Core Salon. Welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to get everyone up to speed with who you are and what you do and your ideas in the world. And these days, you're the VP of Brand Development at Hudson Hemp and also Treaty. Do you want to start by kicking things off and talking a little bit about what each of these companies are and your role in it? Yes, I would I would love to. So I'll begin by sharing how the context of how these companies came to be. And I'll mention that uh, it is a family affair. So Hudson Hemp is located at Old Mud Creek Farm, which is in Hudson, New York. And it's a farm that my brother has managed since 2014. And it's adjacent to another farm called Stonehouse Grain. And both farms occupy over 2,000 acres. Wow. And yeah, so it, I always bring that up because the scale matters so much in terms of what we do and what the model that we've created can mean for agriculture. So he, he led a transition on these farms from being conventionally grown, very industrial monocropping of corn and soy to transforming the land to being certified organic and creating a regenerative agricultural system that now occupies all of that land, all of that soil, and has become a very beneficial organism in the community and on planet Earth, but also beneficial in terms of showing what farming at a mid to large scale could look like in the U.S. So Melanie, I have to ask, because I feel like you mentioned a word that some of the listeners might not be super familiar with, and it's this idea of regenerative agriculture. Can you give us, and it doesn't, I know I'm probably asking a massive question here, but can you give us a little bit of the the lay of the land, if you will, of, of what that means and what makes it different than what people might imagine as like a big industrial farm? 
So industrial farming in the U.S. and really in the whole world has been a very destructive pursuit. It has been draining to our resources and has been a large source of carbon emissions. So that is carbon going into the atmosphere and causing potentially climate change. Regenerative agriculture is very antithetical to that. And the whole idea is that it's going beyond sustainability to actually replenish ecosystems, build soil, and it's constantly trying to create closed loop systems. So that is taking what could be waste and redirecting it on our farm to actually close a loop and ultimately bring carbon back into our soil and create living soil systems that feed the environment and feed our plants. So just so we can kind of get a little bit of a look and feel for what some of those practices might be, like, what what does that look like? I mean, is that like moving manure back to the fields? Is that like, are there things that people would be able to notice, like if they were driving by a farm near them? Well, I always notice when I am looking at our pieces of land next to the conventional farms, just how green and vibrant and filled with life they are. So you can see that in the insects that exists from monarch butterflies to ladybugs. And then I often notice it in the bird life that exists. But one major difference that you'll see is that we don't have any major tillage to our soil. So we aren't, you won't look at one of our fields and see a bunch of overturned soil. The land will always be occupied with a cover crop or a perennial crop or hemp now. And so that is another major difference that you'll notice on many more conventional farms, you'll see a lot of overturned soil and mud and deep tracks from tractors. And in that space, what's happening is a lot of carbon is being emitted into the atmosphere. Is it just from the tractors necessarily, or is it from other sources as well? You know, we it's, might be we might be geeking yeah. out a little a little bit too much, but maybe yeah, it's really the tillage. So it is it, it, meaning that uh, a till has dug deep into the soil and overturned all of that soil, so it can no longer be a living soil system in the way that undisturbed soil is. Got it. So there are chemical processes that are happening that as soon yeah. as you start messing with the ecology, is, I don't know if that's the right word, that it's changing is it, the, the chemistry of the soil. Absolutely. And okay. the things that you can't see are what's being fed to the soils in general. But one thing that you may pick up on is that when you look at, at our fields, you'll see a lot of different crops growing at once. It's not, it's not just one large swath of corn. You can see from, you know, from the road several different crops, and that's very reflective of what's happening also in the soil. When you have diverse microbial life, you have a living soil system. And if you're tilling the soil or feeding chemicals into the soil, you're essentially killing any vitality and life force that exists. So this is fascinating to hear, especially as someone who for the last 10 years is geeked out about microbes in the gut. I mean, it sounds like such a wonderful parallel to how even our digestive systems work, right? Like you need that like... You need all of that different 
but also balanced flora just to keep our own health. And it sounds like the soil is like kind of a mirror for that. Absolutely. And there are studies that have shown that the disease in our country is very much linked to the disease in our soil and the degradation of all of our soils. And the two really go hand in hand. So it feels far off, you know, this idea that we are so linked and connected to the earth that we live on every day. But in fact, we are very linked and you can see a direct connection to the disease in our country and the degradation of our ecosystems and our soil and the microbial life in those soils. So this is something it sounds like you and your brother have really been focused on. I mean, at least since 2014, but I'm guessing before that as well. Yes, we grew up in agriculture and our father was one of the first organic farmers in the in Berkshire County. He really pioneered the farm to table movement. So that is the background that we came from. And Whereas my brother always knew that he would continue uh, in the agricultural world, I it, it comes as a surprise to me that I'm here today. And I'm happily here today, but it was never my plan. And so it's it's interesting that it, it it's sort of a life that I feel I inherited. So what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? So I think I thought I would be a lawyer or uh, who knows, something that was not farm-like because (laughs) it was so familiar to me. And I always think back, and my sister, who also works with us, always thinks back to these moments where we would have to stop at the farm before going here or there. And it was such a drag. (laughs) <laughs> and I, we'd always say, hey, are we going to the farm again? And so I think back to those moments. But I also think back to them to the summer times where I would be working on the farm at a pretty young age. And it was a lettuce farm with heirloom tomatoes, primarily specialty lettuce and microgreens. And I realize now how much it, it taught me and how much of what I do is very much uh, an evolution of what I grew up doing, of harvesting, of processing, of weighing, of shipping out these orders. And it was that familiarity to that whole process that made coming into the cannabis industry a very natural sort of fit. And when I recognized the similarity and the beauty of, of feeling at home in something, I knew that I wouldn't be turning back from it. I knew that it was exactly where I wanted to be. Because you were working on a farm that mostly grew a different type of green plants. How yeah. did you end up getting into hemp? I finished college at Bard College, and I was living here in Hudson, And I thought to myself, okay, I really feel at this moment in time like I know where my life is going. And I didn't really like that feeling. I felt like it was a perfect opportunity to roll the dice. And so I called my friend who was in Northern California at the time. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go make some money and move to L.A. where I will pursue other things. And I left Hudson with about $9 in my pocket. And I moved out to Northern California with with about one suitcase. And I'll never forget the moment that I arrived on this farm that had over five greenhouses. And one of my best friends was working there. And about two weeks into us working together, we were operating the whole operation she said to me, I think I have to get out of here. So (laughs) 
<laughs> which You're like, was, I spent my nine dollars. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I didn't have a car, and so I felt well. I felt sort of like, okay, well, she's leaving. I must stay, and uh, I also had become sort of fascinated with the whole situation. It was a really poignant moment in time for uh, for Northern California. I kind of came to understand that cannabis cultivation in the U.S. had been sustained by this group of grassroots individuals, and they were rugged, and they had really risked all of their freedom for this plant. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself and something sort of counter to culture in a way. And I really began to fall in love with that culture. And by the end of that season, um, we harvested over 500 pounds of cannabis on that farm. I was managing, uh, at that point, over 60 people because I had sort of realized the network of growers that I was in. And I, the, the farm that I was on was actually connected to five other farms. And that winter, I co-founded a cannabis staffing agency called People Need People. And it was uh, an interesting time and a time of fast learning because that whole movement was really being transformed into an industry. So at this point in California, the illicit market was becoming licit. And all of these underground growers were figuring out how to make all of their operations comply in this newly established industry. So I had a lot of uh, experience at that moment uh, transforming with, with them all parts of their operations. So the type of uh, attention that that required was really all-encompassing. And I became pretty passionate about what I was doing. And simultaneously to that happening, Ben, my brother, had applied for his hemp license here in New York. So it was really a divine timing uh, because I was able to then take all of the knowledge that I had accumulated and come back, which I was really excited to do, and apply it to this, this new industry here in New York. So obviously, you and your brother are siblings, right? Like you talk, I assume. Yes. Or like, did one nudge the other? Or did you no. both kind of find this on your own? Like, hey, here's what I'm thinking yeah. of. <laughs> so it's so interesting. But we were really operating on our own islands, which is why it felt so divine. At that time in my life, I was not really talking to my family because I was so engaged in my work. And often I was up in mountains where there was no cell phone service. So quite literally, I was very disconnected from my family. However, the work that I was doing felt so much like home that I think I felt more connected to them than I had ever felt. And then moving into cannabis was a natural evolution of his career. So it was really all fate that we were both, (laughs) that we both ended up at at those places at at that time. And uh, it was somewhat magic. Life is so remarkable some days. Definitely. And Just to add to that remarkability, my dad also entered the industry totally on his own island (laughs) and was the first, uh, first licensed outdoor grower in Massachusetts for the medical market. Cut it out. Yeah. So that this still trips me out because it's not like we all sat down together one day and said, hey. The cannabis industry is going to become explosive. Let's all find a way in and do it together like a family business. That never that never happened. It was all a natural movement in our own directions, and they all sort of brought us together. From what you've seen just being in and around this world of, of 
farmers and growers. Like, is that a natural question that every farmer is starting to ask themselves? Mm. Like, should we get in or get it or stay out? Ooh, I from the farmers that I know who are usually talking to me about getting in, I would say it has crossed everyone's mind. And and part of that is that a lot of farming industries have failed. For example, the dairy industry in New York. And so we have a lot of of struggling farmers who are in positions where they need an alternative. They need a valuable crop or a valuable livelihood, really. And that has really taken away some of the stigma around the plant, the fact that it has been ushered into the agricultural paradigm in the U.S. because you have all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds wondering if they can grow this plant, if they can be part of growing this plant. Wow. It's such a fascinating industry. I mean, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in, but I definitely have been like trying to read up a little bit more and just try to start understanding what are even some of the legal or or financial Mm. issues around it, mostly because that was part of my background. So it's how I how I tend to do due diligence about things, right? Mm-hmm. But it's wild to hear that the plant is, it's like, there's the stigma around the plant, and then the plant is changing the stigma with a group of, of people that I guess I wouldn't normally expect, like my local dairy farmer to be contemplating growing cannabis. Right. Can we talk about the stigma a little? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I notice, like, as I've been kind of going through this career pivot and thinking about what things are next for me, right? Like, I've been recognizing I had a lot of user experience tools, but recognizing I also was missing some and going back to school. And I feel like the question has come up over and over for me, like, over the last several months, like, well, what do you want? What do you want to do with all of this? And I feel like... For me personally, I'm so fascinated with how people experience services. And I feel like I went to South by Southwest earlier this year, and you probably know this, they've introduced an entire part of their conference as like a whole cannabis track. Mm -hmm. And I sort of just found myself like wandering around and like sitting in on some of these panels. And I'm like, this is such a fascinating industry. But I've noticed as I've come back and shared some of that interest with with people, I've gotten a lot of cocked heads when I'm like, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, I would love to be redesigning the dispensary experience, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, eventually... You know, right now, all of these dispensaries are licensed and it's very controlled, you know, definitely here in New York where it's still only a medical market. But like things are changing in Massachusetts right next door and many of other states going completely green. And I think there's going to be competition, you know, so like really thinking about the end user and what kind of experience they're having, like not only just using the product, but like purchasing the product, getting educated about the product. It's it's made a lot of people like sort of cock their heads and look at me weird or like mm-hmm. bring up like really funny questions. And it's mm-hmm. I feel like I'm I'm just getting probably a small sliver of stigma that you might experience when you're out in the world speaking to the, mm-hmm. the public at large. What's been your experience? Well, I. I see stigma as an opportunity for dialogue and education and conversation. And usually if I've entered a space and cannabis has come up, even if there is a veil of stigma, there is still some serious curiosity. And that's why the conversation is the room, is in the room. That is why I'm in the room. And I, so I've become very uh, used to stigma and I would say comfortable being uncomfortable. And so in large part, what I feel Hudson Hemp's platform does is act as a campaign to normalize the plant 
And we've utilized a lot of different mediums to make that possible. We were part of a exhibit at MoMA PS1 where our plants were integrated into a an installation. Uh, we can, which was incredible because it quite simply put cannabis next to other flowers and plants. Everybody loves flowers. Everybody loves bouquets. They're very cross-cultural. They're, uh, you know, a universal um, expression of love and beauty. That, I think, was very effective. This summer, we ran a series of farm tours. Uh, it was four farm tours, and the fourth one was added on by popular demand. Part of the reason we did these farm tours was because we wanted the opportunity to put up nine by 18 posters all across the Hudson Valley that had a large picture of a cannabis field and said farm tours. And so this opportunity was incredible because it, it, it made a statement that couldn't have been made a few years ago. Uh, I bring these examples up because these are ways that we have platformed to um, fight the stigma and to make the stigma approachable also because the reason it exists is because of a lot of misinformation. It is also because of the laws that uh, exist around cannabis and the statements that throughout history were made to demonize the plant, much of which had a lot of connections to uh, institutionalized racism and the war on drugs. And so the, these topics are, are things that if you are in this business, they are a part of the dialogue. They are a part of shaping the industry. And they're really important. And I think it's also interesting to notice where the stigmas are still coming from because those are communities of people who are still stuck within a bubble. But I think we can recognize that if we're noticing the stigma, then the conversation is there and it, it, it is a, an opportunity. So it's, it's something that I'm, I'm grateful that we are a part of unraveling. And I imagine considering you oversee brand development, a lot of those conversations probably fall to you as the work gets split mm -hmm. out, right? Absolutely. I will say where we invite the most digital conversation is probably our Instagram. And the biggest stigma that we fight on our Instagram, and I would say it's not even a fight, it just happens and we're aware of it, is that we have certain people in our community that are upset about the smell of the plant. And so it, it, I'm just noting, you know, that in fact, I would say the Hudson Valley, uh, specifically Columbia County, has been extraordinarily supportive, open, and excited for what we're doing. And I'm thankful to be here because of that. And I feel like we have a gracious and progressive community. Uh, and it's some, it, it is interesting, you know, the smell, people being upset with the smell could mean a number of things. It could mean simply that they just don't like the smell. It could also mean that they have negative connotations around the smell being part of their life because there is an embedded stigma around the plant. So it could be a simple reason or it could be something more complex. Yeah, it's definitely a smell that's polarizing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and but are it, you, when people are complaining about the smell, is it the smell driving by or is it the smell of the products or is mm -hmm. it both? Oh, it's the smell driving by. 
And there's because oh, I've never yeah. actually I've never actually been to a grower. So Oof, it is potent. <laughs> I will I always bring up this story. But last year I remember getting out of my car at Hannaford's, which is about two miles from our farm, and oh, I no. smell this this cannabis and I'm thinking what I've never smelled someone light up a joint in this in parking lot parking. of the grocery store are you kidding across from the the police station and then I realized oh my goodness that that those are our plants so when there's certain um you know winds going on what have you the smell will waft miles you know from the source and that is a testament to how powerful the terpenes are, the, the aromatic compounds of the cannabis plant, which is also a very medicinal attribute that the plant has. Oh, my God. That is, first off, hysterical that two miles away on a certain day, you're getting a massive whiff of it. And then yes. it also brings up the question of terpenes. Mm-hmm. I know there's so much to this question as well. What could people who are just being introduced to cannabis and the plant, like what do, what do they need to know about what terpenes are? So terpenes are the aromatic compounds in plants. And it's not necessarily distinct to cannabis at all. Most plants, I would say all plants have terpenes. And what makes cannabis so unique is the number of terpenes that the plant has. It has over 100 identifiable terpenes that the plant will express. And research has shown that there is synergy between the terpenes, the aromatic compounds, and the cannabinoids, the active chemical compounds. Uh, CBD is a cannabinoid. So based on the plant's unique terpene profile in synergy with the plant's unique cannabinoid profile, you will get a certain effect. So on one end, that effect could be that the plant is extremely sedative, uh, maybe really good with inflammation and pain. And on the other end of that spectrum, the plant could be very invigorating and energizing and make you feel very mentally alert. And so those unique effects that the plant has is often tied through research to the unique terpene and cannabinoid profile that the plant expresses. And so when people are looking at different strains of cannabis, these are the, the chemical constituents that they're looking at and studying to figure out, like, basically how to package and market different strains, right? Absolutely. And how to, how to breed, you know, you may find that, wow, this terpene linalool and this uh, chemical constituent uh, CBN is incredible for X. How do we breed a plant that is higher in those distinct compounds? And then, further than that, how do we extract those compounds so that they stay intact? And yes, how do we market this product? Yeah, because at the end of the day, like it's now becoming a business as opposed to just recreational, right? Right. right. Even for the recreational market, we can see that cannabis is moving you know, in the craft cannabis space into where you see coffee or different um, spirits so that, you know, the different flavor and aromatic notes for, for the right connoisseur in a recreational setting will still matter, uh, just in a different way, of course, than medically how they matter. But certainly in a recreational setting, uh, cannabis will continue to mirror the coffee and spirits market. Yeah, it seems like more and more stuff is popping up everywhere. And it's it's interesting, like how you're describing it. it. It makes me wonder, are people making the choices for the flavor, for the effect, or is it a combination of both? 
well, it's really hard with the effect piece because although we can make blanket statements like, oh, a p- more piney weed, you know, that, that smells where, where you pick up on more piney sort of uh, tropical uh, floral notes will be uh, more invigorating that the opposite might be true for someone. It really becomes really personal. And it also depends so much how a person doses, you know, having (laughs) a a small dose will will yield a very different effect than a really large dose. But given the right user, a large dose might not do the same thing as for someone else. So it's, it's really hard to be authoritative around around effects because everyone has such a unique response to the plant yeah because not only does the plant have its own biochemistry we also do too right so totally makes sense yes um oh my gosh it's so fascinating the world you're dwelling in (laughs) i know (laughs) i'm perpetually fascinated and we're we're entering or we are in such an incredible time where there's endless new anecdotes and research entering the public domain at every moment. How do you keep up with all of it? Mm. Uh, I try to stay focused on the questions and research that we are already participating in, it's really easy to get carried away and feel like you have to understand and be a part of every single bit of all of this. For me personally, it is more rewarding to stay true to what it is you've already spent the most time on. So it's interesting that you mentioned, or that we mentioned uh, the terpene and cannabinoid connection. That is something that I'm fascinated by uh, because it, it, it really speaks to all parts of production. Like we said, from the breeding to the extraction to the final end product that you're marketing to a consumer. And it is, it's fascinating. And it also speaks to botany and other plants and just how complex these plants are uh, and all the ways that they can express themselves and the different profiles they can have. What makes that little part of this whole ecosystem so interesting to you? It speaks to something in the cannabis world called the entourage effect which is the idea that terpenes work together with cannabinoids to enhance cannabis's therapeutic effect as a whole. And I think why that matters to me so much is because the world of pharmacology has been historically all about isolating compounds. And the cannabis plant brought to life this new wave of understanding a plant more holistically. And I think that in that, we can see a connection to the so- our social world that we've created, uh, that capitalism and technology and a lot of things have worked to isolate groups of people. And that's, that, those are some of the challenges that we face as a world today. So I feel like understanding this, this whole picture of the cannabis plant, you know, the chemical compounds in synergy with the aromatic and flavor compounds speaks not only to medicine and what, what, what the future of regenerative medicine could be, but also um, to our culture and uh, what the future of our culture could be if we, if we don't live in, um, in a world of, of just isolations, if we start seeing a whole picture. So what you just described is actually one of the things that makes me, I don't want to say sad because that feels like way too strong of a, a word. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think as someone who has been interested in just holistic health for a long time, I, I think, you know, looking at the pharmaceutical industry and, and to your point where it's just like, well, isolate this one thing that we've tested that works, but not really, and then take it away from the whole rest of the plant or the whole rest of the food and and just give people more of that, like a big concentrated dose of that has always felt really strange and kind of unsettling to me and mm-hmm. uncomfortable to me. I think one of the things that has seemed so interesting about the cannabis space originally like, is that it is about the plant, the whole plant. And like now, like as everyone is like sort of pouring into this market and touching it, it's becoming the extract that goes over here and the extract that goes over here. Like, how do you how do you protect that right like how do you how do you keep it about the whole plant Mm. i think we're in a very special moment right now where federal legalization has not taken place and because of that we have this rare opportunity to create a world that we want to live in, not that we're told we have to live in. And it is a moment where a lot of dreaming can take place about what that world looks like. The other edge of that sword is that federal legalization is imminent and that this momentary dream will go away. (laughs) And so that those are some of my fears. Um, that that linger day to day because the whole plant is being deconstructed more and more in a very pharmacological way and it's all about continue that that's why i maintain my focus on what I care about because the more people in the industry that are doing that and who are building communities around doing that, the stronger a force we are in maintaining that whole plant picture, which can translate into many other facets of of life, uh, into our culture, into our society, into how we uh, do business, say, at, in, at the dispensary level. You mentioned user experience. And I think that it's all about uh, staying true and um, maintaining your passion because we do have this moment where we can build this industry in the way that we want to. And that's a really rare moment to be a part of. It has to be really exciting for you to see all of this changing. I mean, considering like you left college, went to California, and we're like growing on a mountaintop, right? Yeah. To now be like where you are here in New York and seeing this this whole movement start to take shape. I mean, what is that like? It is surreal. And I am blessed to be part of this farm that is very intersectional. For example, we have a carbon research project called Hudson Carbon that uh, is headquartered at the same place Hudson Hemp is. And Hudson Carbon is studying our carbon sequestration as well as our methane and nitrous fluctuations on our farm. And understanding how we can actually value carbon as part of an agricultural system. And so I mentioned that to say that, yeah, I'm in a position that feels really like it is part of the solution to uh, some of the largest problems that we face of our time. And it's, it is surreal being here and thinking, yeah, thinking back to to where I was and what sort of started this for me. And what have you taken with you from your experience with People Need People? Like, I imagine that was really formative for you and 
and and made some really transferable skills? Mm-hmm. The biggest piece that I took with me was understanding what cannabis meant to the group of people that sustained the industry while it was illegal. These are people, like I mentioned before, who really risked their freedom for the plant. And the connection that I was able to witness between this community and the plant, and when I say this community, I'm really referring to Humboldt County, was profound and stuck with me. And is part of the reason why I don't actually fear the government taking you know, taking this plant and doing with it what uh, what has been done to a lot of other plants, because I believe I believe in the movement. You know, I saw it and witnessed it and was a part of it firsthand. And that sticks to me. Uh, Also, the solitude of Northern California and those uh, serviceless mountains that I was on, that sticks with me because I had a real moment, you know, with, with the plant uh, that really shaped how I feel about it. And uh, that that will never go away from how I work and the perspective that I bring into the rooms that I walk into when we're talking about this plant and shaping the future of this industry. What made that such a moment for you? I had a really personal relationship with the plant my whole life. And I had never fully realized that until until the moment that I did. And that was the moment that I realized, okay, I'm going to work on behalf of this plant for this plant for the rest of my life. I had a real personal ritual with the plant through college, uh, also through moments of loss that I experienced. And for me, it became a large part of my personal medicine. And that plays a large part also about why why I care about the products we create, because I know that this could mean the world to someone else that and that um, in in creating medicine for people, we can also be helping the earth and helping create a culture around the earth uh, through through our workers, through our workspace, through the events that we do that is healthy and that doesn't ignore the pace of nature that is very much in tune with it. And that's really special given the times that we live in that are all so fast paced and often disconnected from the natural cycles of life. Wow. Wow. What I'm finding in the cannabis space, it's like this funny energy around sharing personal experience with the plant. So thank you for opening up and, and just mentioning the ritual and what it's, it's done for you. I I think one of the things I was blown away by when I was at panels at South by Southwest was how everyone working in this space actually has a personal connection to it. It seems so rare if people don't. Is that what you've found as well? Absolutely. I mean, there. I will say at this point, a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds are coming in. And sometimes it's because they just smell money. I will say all of the people I'm blessed to work with all share that personal connection to the plant. And in some ways have all been part of the fight to normalize that connection with the plant and say, hey, we, we need medicine as a culture. That's not a bad thing. I think that pills, which, of course, have a role and they are a tool and I'm, I'm grateful that we have them, but they make it so that we don't honor necessarily the connection that we have and need to medicine and that uh, that cannabis has been a way to open up that conversation is really palpable uh, with with the people that I work with and with the 
uh, comrades that I have in this space in general. <laughs> that's such an awesome way to put it, comrades. Yeah, that's how I feel, though, because we all see each other. I mean, especially with social media. I mean, like, we see the work that we're all doing, and we know that it is a bit of a, a fight. Yeah, and I don't mean fight in a violent way. I mean, like, a, a fight of passion, a labor of love, like, it's, it's something that you kind of need that personal relationship with the plant to, to want to keep on uh, going. Yeah, I never had much of a relationship with it growing up. I mean, dabbled a little in college or whatnot, you know, here and there. And it, it wasn't my thing until last year around this time, I suffered a second concussion Um I've had two within a five-year span, and both of them left me unconscious and, like, really rocked. And not a lot of people understand concussions. Mm. And after the second one, basically, as a woman, they're starting to do more, like, gender-based medicine and having a, a, a look at, like, how do concussions affect men? Because they kind of mm. just treat women as men in that regard and mm -hmm. sort of just hope that like whatever works for men works for women. But what they're starting to find is like women, when we experience concussions often more frequently with more intensity and for a longer duration, aren't we lucky? Mm -hmm. um, and then the science around concussions and the treatment around it is, is not great. And so I had been experiencing a ton of symptoms, you know, because it the intensity gets worse each time, the healing time gets longer, it's largely unpredictable anyways. Mm. And it was only because my husband plays hockey and, you know, started having a conversation in a locker room one night with one of his teams. And, you know, people were asking, how's Kara? Oh, still pretty banged up. And you know, he was like, well, you know, a bunch of you guys all have concussions. Like, what? what's helped? Because there's, mm -hmm. there's not a lot. And she's not getting a lot of support from her doctor. And it, it was funny. He said it was an, an interesting moment because people were just like quietly and sort of just like pulling out a vape pen or talking about the CBD oil that they apply when they get home from a game. And it was like mm -hmm. people like were finding comfort and feeling better using the plant but not wanting to talk about it right like it it, it doesn't uh, come up naturally in conversation right. it was only because craig had a wife who was sort of brain damaged at home that mm. like that it only came up in conversation then and you know that's been my interest over the past year it's just like wow it's really been helpful for me whether that's just anecdotal or like i I don't even understand the science behind it, honestly. It's really mm -hmm. hard to get into the research and what does what. But it's been interesting because, I mean, since then, like when I have a checkup with my doctor and I tell her, like, I've, I've been feeling a lot better, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and some of the mood instability and the headaches and a lot of the symptoms went away within, a you know, a week of, of starting to use just CBD oil. And it's been interesting because even my doctor's been like, so what do you think? And like asking <laughs> me questions about my experience. Wow. It's so yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is. And part of what excites me is that it allows people to feel a little more agency and autonomy with their health because it's not so cut and dry. It's, it's like an exploration or a discovery and you figure out what works for you. And there's something really empowering because you can go through the rigmarole with um, over the counter meds or um, pharmaceutical meds. And it feels very out of your hand. Uh, even, even the fact that most of the, those types of, um, medicines uh, look the same makes it a very sterile process and like I said there's a great importance to that and I'm, I'm thankful for modern medicine the other side of that is that cannabis right now as a sort of medical revolution is 
re-empowering people to care about their health, to pay attention to what works for them and how it works for them. And there's, there's something really profound there. There is. And I'm, I'm so waiting to see where this all goes. Like it, it feels like everything is changing at like a breakneck pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. So, so Melanie, this is a podcast where we often talk about bullshit and burnout. And I, I feel like as I'm listening to your story and listening to the work that you do and the space that you're doing the work in, I guess like I have to ask, how do you not totally burn out fighting the fight? I mean, when you think of what Hudson Hemp is doing, I mean, Mm. you're not only participating in shaping what the cannabis space looks like here in the state of New York, but you're also like tackling environmental issues. And I, I, I think accurately to your point earlier, I mean, it's it also looks at labor. It also looks at race. I mean, like all of these things are in this big pot that you're stirring. How mm. do you not totally burn out? Hmm. Well, formerly, I really did not like the word balance, but I have come <laughs> to come to like it. And not to say I even live a balanced lifestyle, but I will say I always try to laugh a lot throughout my day. And uh, that helps balance the intensity of work and the long, long hours. I think having a sense of humor for what I do every day keeps a lightheartedness in it that helps me maintain myself because it's, yeah, these past few years have been fully wide awake work. And (laughs) I, yeah, I... uh, I can't say that I haven't felt burnt out, but I also preserved um, enough sort of health and well-being that I can always keep going and I always want to keep going. And the long hours don't feel um, like a necessity as much as just part of what I am here to do for, you know, in my life. And uh, I'm really glad to have found, found that. For myself, so I there's a lot of gratitude there, and so I yeah. Going back to your question, sense of humor. I try to drink a lot of water, and I am lucky to also uh, take CBD regularly, which sounds like I'm just you know marketing product, but in a real way. I think that has helped me. I can even look in the mirror and see a difference, like a vibrancy, a balance, you know, a, a, like a life force that, uh, that is there. And I owe that in part to the plant that I get to work with every day and uh, consume every day, too. I totally can attest to that as well. I know it was, I think after I started using it for about, I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half. I remember my husband just looked at me and after the first concussion, I was definitely experiencing some mood instability, just, you know, normal lows in life felt significantly lower to me. Mm-hmm. You know, there was like a, it was a, at points, a depression that I had never experienced in my life before, or a just a, and watching like a baseline level of anxiety, like, I mean, mm-hmm. I was a pretty uptight person, like, through my 20s, and I've, I've been mellowing with every decade I get older. But, I mean, there is a certain intensity about me, but but it was not, like, anxious, like a gnawing anxiety. And after that first concussion, things changed for me. Um, mm. It really rocked me, and it, it changed that baseline level of anxiety. So I can totally understand and live firsthand like what you just described like it just mm-hmm. there is a peacefulness and an easiness and enough that my husband remarked like just out of the blue one day he's like i just i haven't seen you this like light since before mm-hmm. that first concussion 
and there was nothing else that I could really attribute it to. <laughs> so I've just kind of gone with it. <laughs> I com- Well, I completely relate because in many ways, the, the amount of, uh, of time I spend working, I would think that I would actually feel more burnt out than I do. And certainly through college, when I had less of a conscious relationship to the plant and I less understood the different constituents, so I wasn't consciously working with CBD at that point, I would come to these places where I was direly burnt out and with, with serious anxiety, I would say debilitating. And I have not, I mean, part of that is just, um, you know, growing up, of course, but I will say there's a, a sensibility that um, that this type of medicine brings brings to the table, where there's an even keeled nature to the results that I'm really happy with, and uh, have definitely complemented the work that I do. And I also want to applaud you on drinking water, because anyone that's listening that it has, been, has been a client of mine knows that that is something I am so preachy about. <laughs> There's not mm-hmm. a lot of things that I'm I'm forceful about, but in 10 years of private conversations with women, you know, especially around health and lifestyle stuff, mm-hmm. it's not drinking water has been like the biggest go-to tool which is almost like embarrassing that I got paid basically to tell grown women to drink water. But it seems like it's a huge problem that can be so easily solved and make people feel like easily probably 25 to 50% better with almost all of the things that they were coming to me with. Absolutely. And I owe that piece of my health and well-being to my sister, who is constantly... (laughs) filling my water glass, uh, literally and spiritually. So that's another piece that keeps me from fully burning out is I, I work with my family. And that comes with challenges, of course, but realizing what that means and how lucky I am that there's that much love in my workplace and also that much intuition because you're so connected to your siblings has played a huge role in in all of our successes in the past uh, few years here amazing and I always like to end on this question because I think sometimes these conversations boil up all sorts of things that maybe we didn't even think about coming to the conversation but I, I want to ask, what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? Well, I do usually end with this quote, and it is a, a quote by Audre Lorde, and it is, revolution is not a one-time event. And I chose today to also say it because it's something I tell myself a lot, And it reminds me that change is perpetual and that we're in a constant state of change and we don't always know what the larger picture outcome will be, but it's always good to trust that you are in the swing of of something great and Uh, It's all about recognizing that you don't know exactly where you are within that, but that you are. And that quote alone has gone through its own metamorphosis with me through the past few years. And so I'd like to leave it to the listeners. And it's something I repeat to myself regularly. Well, I thank you for this conversation. I thank you for what might become a new mantra of mine, especially as I'm undergoing lots of change in my own world right now as well. And I am so grateful you you took the time out of your wildly busy schedule to stop by the salon. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely addition to my Saturday, and I appreciate all of your thoughtful questions.
Wow, wasn't Melanie a fantastic and informative guest? I think so, and I hope you do too. We're all sort of evolving, as Melanie mentioned. We also learned about an industry that's rapidly evolving. If you want to learn more, I posted any of the resources that we mentioned in this episode in the links to the show notes, and you can find all of those at levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. Or you can go directly to hudsonhemp.com or rtreaty.com to learn more about what Melanie is up to. One last request, please share a link to this episode with at least one human you know might dig the topic or the interview or just whatever made you think of that person during this episode. Not only does it help amplify the work that Melanie's doing, it actually helps grow this podcast as well. And for those of you who have been liking and sharing and getting the word out, thank you so much. It really does make a difference. And I want to mention some people that make a difference to this podcast. So I want to thank my producer, Craig Snyder. I want to thank Darlene Victoria, my virtual assistant. I want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the awesome theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.